Lord, we thank you that you're amongst us this morning. We thank you for what you're doing in our hearts. We pray that you would come and inspire us and encourage us and challenge us in a fresh way. Give us, Lord, a sense of the reality of your kingdom in the world and of the way in which you want us to participate with you in your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been thinking about Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God these last couple of weeks. We'll finish our short series this morning by thinking about three key aspects of the kingdom which are highlighted by the Apostle Paul. Justice, peace, and joy. Paul doesn't mention the phrase kingdom of God very often in his letters, but his writings actually are shot through with the whole idea of the kingdom of God. When Paul met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he realized that the rulership of God for which he and his fellow Pharisees had been waiting had, after all, and surprisingly, arrived in the person of Jesus. And the gospel which he felt compelled to preach throughout the Roman Empire to Jew and Gentile alike was the ancient gospel of Isaiah. Now you remember the passage because we've all sung it so many times. How lovely on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, announcing peace, proclaiming news of happiness. And what's the news? What is this good news, this news of happiness? What's the chorus of the song? Our God reigns, our God reigns. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel that both Isaiah and Paul proclaimed. Our God reigns. Right throughout Paul's letters, we get this running theme of the reality of God's reign. And the sense that it has come in the person of Jesus, requiring a, an acknowledgement of that reality by every person, and, as, and a sense that there is now, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, a new creation which believers in Christ can share in. God's doing something in the world. He's, re, he's renewing and remaking the world. There's a new creation. But one day that will come to an ultimate fulfillment when we share, when God, God gives us new transformed resurrection bodies and we will share in a new remade earth with his peace and justice, a visible reality. And what we find actually in Paul is the same sense that we've seen in Jesus of the present reality of the kingdom amongst us and the hope for a greater, more visible reality which is yet to come. Just wondering, is that, is that the PA system or no? Is that, oh, a helicopter. <laughs> All right, never mind. <laughs> so you've got this sense um, both in Jesus and Paul, of the kingdom which has arrived or which is arriving and the kingdom which is yet to come in all its fullness. So this morning we want to focus on one thing that Paul says about the kingdom of God, but actually is bursting full of meaning. And the context for this in Romans needn't detain us too long. Suffice it to say that Paul is encouraging two rival camps in the church at Rome to take their eyes off some matters of difference which are largely immaterial. 
These are immaterial in the light of the reality of the kingdom of God and the importance of justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, some of your Bible translations, I know, will read righteousness, peace, and joy. The Greek word that Paul uses here uh, can be translated equally justice and righteousness. And justice, I think, gets us to the heart of the matter better. So let's take a look at each of these in turn and have we think about them, um, particularly with reference to Jesus' teaching. First of all, justice. Now at the risk of showing myself to be the shallow, easily pleased person that I am, my favorite TV program is CSI Miami. Any other, any other fans out there? Any, anybody watch? Yes, one or two who will admit to it. <laughs> now, I like it. It's not because of all the forensic science stuff, although that's good. It's actually because of Horatio Cain. If you've ever seen CSI Miami, you'll know that Horatio, or H, as his friends call him, is just such a cool dude. He's got really way cool shades, and the way he tilts his head to the side, and he talks in this sort of laconic, self-assured manner. He's just so cool. But more than that, Horatio always gets his man. You see, if you're a victim of a crime, Horatio will reassure you that he is, no doubt about it, he is going to get the person responsible. Justice is going to be done. And that's Horatio's appeal. We all want justice to be done. We want the good to be vindicated, and we want the bad guys to get their comeuppance. You remember how when you were a child and your big brother or sister were allowed to stay up to watch some TV program and you had to go to bed? It just isn't fair. It's not fair. Everything within you cries out for justice. And I think that's because that's the way that God made us. It's part of the fabric of the universe, actually. The need for justice, for fairness, for things to be right. And it shouldn't surprise us to know that that's exactly the way that God is. Now the Bible, both Old Testament and New, talks an awful lot about God's justice. In the scriptures from which Jesus and Paul get their idea of what God's kingdom is all about, we're told this in Deuteronomy. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner. In Amos, God wants justice to flow down like a river. In Psalms, God sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He loves righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. In Isaiah, the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. The Lord is the God of justice. The Lord loves justice. In Zephaniah, the Lord is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Actually, we could go on and on and on. And it's only a small sample, and we haven't even mentioned all the passages where God's people are enjoined to join with him in demonstrating justice. 
I hope that we see developing through the Old Testament for a new decisive day of God's rulership in the earth builds on this picture of a God who is passionate about justice and making things right. And we get a picture of a day when God will return, rescue his people from his enemies and put all wrongs to right. And he will bring in a wonderful day of a just and peaceful reign. And the prophets of Israel call this the day of the Lord. It's not surprising that we see this theme picked up in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be filled. You're blessed if you're persecuted for the sake of justice. If you seek first God's reign and his justice, God will look after you and supply your needs. And we see this sense of justice demonstrated as well by Jesus as he mixes with the outsiders and those on the margins and includes them in his new kingdom community. As he taught the futility of riches and urged the wealthy to use their resources to help the poor. And as he includes everybody in God's kingdom on the basis of faith and trust in God. So justice then, God loves justice. It's the foundation of his throne. In other words, it's at the very heart of his rulership. And one day when Jesus returns to bring in the fullness of his kingdom, God's justice will be fully known and fully made manifest. But Jesus and the rest of the New Testament won't let us get away simply with looking forward eagerly to the future when God is going to sort out the whole rotten mess. Dare we turn inwards, comfortable in our own salvation, feeling what can we do? And anyway, God's going to sort it all out one day. The New Testament makes it clear that we're to live out the reality of God's reign here and now. We're to demonstrate the truth that will one day become manifest to the whole world, that God reigns. We're to show forth to the world that's crumbling around us, a world that's, a world that's just lost that change has begun, that Christ has risen, that there is hope and that God will transform the world. We're to build for the kingdom, as Graham told us a few weeks ago. And that means that justice has to be high on our agenda because it's high on God's agenda. In fact, it's what God's kingdom project is actually all about, putting everything that's wrong to rights. If we're to be Christ followers and Christ's kingdom people, we must love justice. We must show it forth. We must hunger and thirst for it. Maybe put ourselves at times in a position of getting into trouble because of it, because we're so passionate about it. We must seek it first beyond everything. That is the radical and rather uncomfortable teaching of Jesus. Nancy Gibbs, who writes for Time magazine, recently said something which highlights our response to Jesus. She said, passion sees injustice and wants to even the score. The world's poor need no more condolences. They need people to get interested, to get mad, and then get to work. And taking up the same theme of the injustice of world poverty, Bono said recently, God is on his knees begging us to act to get up off our behinds, to take this fight against world poverty to a new level. What would it mean for this church and for our families, 
for each of us as individuals to seek justice. You see, if it's the foundation of God's throne, if it's at the center of this thing we're talking about called God's kingdom, shouldn't it be the foundation of our church life? I don't know how exactly we, we do it, but we need to be asking ourselves continually in decisions that we make about our life as a society, in our church life, maybe as we look to choose a new minister, in our family life, in our personal lives, how does what we're doing, how does what I'm doing, how does it promote a fairer world? How does it benefit the poor? How does it promote the equality of women and men together in, in Christ's church? How does it benefit the planet? How does it demonstrate the passion of our God for justice? How does it put things right? These are the questions that we need to be asking. And if we stop asking those questions, it's likely our focus has slipped from God's priorities to our own. Jackson Brown, in a very insightful song entitled The Rebel Jesus, says this, and perhaps we give a little to the poor, if the generosity should seize us, but if any one of us should interfere in the business of why they are poor, they'll get the same as the rebel Jesus. Asking awkward questions is not a comfortable place to be. It's far from it. But people like Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zephaniah and Paul and yes, Jesus, were not comfortable people to be around. They all knew that justice was the foundation of God's throne. It was at the very heart of his kingdom and they lived accordingly. And Jesus, our Lord, our King, calls us to live as he did, seeking first God's kingdom and his justice. We've got to think together, what way does our lives, what way do they promote and demonstrate the justice of the kingdom of God? Hard questions, but as Jesus followers, questions that we are called to face up to. 60 years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest against violence and with its plea for the weak. Christians are doing too little to make this clear rather than too much. They adjust themselves far too easily to the worship of power. Christians should give more offense, should shock the world more than they are doing. They should, make it, they should make, take a stronger stand in favor of the weak rather than considering first the possible right of the strong. Much to think about. Closely related to the idea of justice is the second thing that Paul says in, uh, about the kingdom, and that is peace. Now, in Paul's Jewish tradition, the idea of peace in the Old Testament is, um, is the idea of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word which means a lot more than simply absence of conflict. It means well-being or wholeness, completeness, it's a major theme in the Old Testament. It occurs over 250 times. It occurs in virtually every book of the Old Testament. And it's about wholeness and health, spiritually and physically. It's about a sense of good relationships. And it's very closely associated with the salvation that God brings to his people. When God acts and delivers his people, he brings peace and shalom. It's a blessing of the reign of God in the world. It's what happens when God rules. 
And for the Jewish prophets who looked forward to the dawn of the new age of God's kingdom on, the, on earth, it was to be the supreme day of shalom. Peace would be the characteristic of God's rule, along with justice. It would be a day when the lion would lie down with the lamb. So again, it shouldn't um, surprise us to see peace feature prominently in Jesus' life and teaching. When the angels proclaimed his birth to the shepherds, what was it they sang? Peace on earth. And as we listen to the teaching of Jesus, we hear him again and again proclaim the gospel of peace. Blessed, he said, are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Love your enemies. Go the second mile with them. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Overcome evil with good. Be at peace with one another. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. My peace I leave with you. These things I have said to you that you may have peace. And in the face of those who wanted to make him king and force the issue with the Roman invaders, Jesus chose instead the way of non-violence, love of enemies, meekness, and, in the f and um, faced up to suffering, torture, and death. His life proclaimed and demonstrated the peace of the kingdom of God, which he proclaimed. When God's kingdom comes in all its fullness, when the non-violent lamb of revelation brings the new Jerusalem to earth, it will be a day that's marked by peace, by shalom, by wholeness and blessing. But already, those of us, you and I, who were one time enemies of God, have been reconciled to him. We have had peace made for us with God by Jesus. He's given us a profound experience of peace in our hearts, our minds, and our spirits. And so, with that in mind, he calls us, his followers, to demonstrate the possibilities of peace and love to a world racked by hatred and violence. New Testament scholar Rudolf Schnackenberg says, everywhere that people follow Jesus in his way, a portion of God's rule is realized. The strength for peace grown, and peace emerges triumphant over all hatred, clash of weapons, and tumult of war. We're to be, as Jesus said, peacemakers in a world that really is in love with war. In a song, Political World, Bob Dylan says, we live in a political world where peace is not welcome at all. It's turned away from the door to wander some more or put up against the wall. But in the midst of all of that, God's revolution of peace is breaking in. Our peacemaking bears witness to the life, the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ, who is the peace pioneer and the prototype who empowers us in our peacemaking. You might say, it's unrealistic. It's unworkable. Richard Hayes, another prominent New Testament scholar working in Duke University says, one reason that the world finds the New Testament's message of peacemaking and love of enemies so incredible is that the church is so massively faithless. Only when the church renounces the way of violence will people see what the gospel means. When the New Testament's teaching becomes evident in communities of Jesus followers who embody the costly way of peace. Kingdom of God is peace, shalom, wholeness, well-being. Can we find ways as individuals, as families, 
as church to bring healing to hurting individuals in a hurting world through an exploration of and a devotion to and a commitment to peace. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, to live in peace and to show that the God of peace is with us. Finally, and briefly, the kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Spirit. In the prophetic vision for the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, joy and celebration, along with an, an extravagant outpouring of the spirits, were to be the hallmarks of the kingdom of the day when God would come to rule. Isaiah said, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. You shall go out with joy, be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. The trees of the field shall clap their hands. Jesus' proclamation of the newly arriving kingdom of God was shot through with this theme of joy and celebration. He kept referring to God's kingdom as a banquet or a party to which everybody was invited. His followers, he said, were to leap for joy, were not to be anxious about anything. Their joy was to be full. They were to experience life in all its fullness. Yes, they were to expect that pursuing countercultural values such as justice and peace would lead to suffering and trouble. Yes, they were to give up self-seeking and care as Jesus did for the marginalized and the poor. And yes, we are subject to the hardships and difficulties of life as much as anybody else. And some of us this morning know that only too well. But in the midst of all of that, God has filled a table for us in the midst of our enemies. As the psalmist put it, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, says James. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice, says the imprisoned Paul to the imperiled Philippians. In the midst of the turbulence of our lives, actually there's a party to be enjoyed. What sort of crazy alternative universe is this? Actually, it's the peaceful, just, and joyful revolution of God. And as we get involved in it, as we work for justice and peace, as we show forth in our lives and the life of our church the coming reality of God's world transformation project, God wants to fill us with his Holy Spirit and to fill us with his joy. He wants us to celebrate. Because the way things are in the world is not the way things are destined to be always. Evil and violence will not have the final word. Love, service, and peace are more powerful. And Christ, through his death and resurrection, has won a great victory over all God's enemies, including the last enemy of death. The last word is with God, not with the hatred and violence around us. The last word is with God and the justice and peace of his rule. And that is a great cause for celebration. And finding ways to incorporate joy and celebration into our lives, and our families, our church, is an essential part of living out the life of the kingdom. Yes, we're to mourn for the sorrow of the world. Yes, we're to feel the pain of those who hurt. 
But yes, there is a new world coming. Yes, there are new possibilities even now through the power of the Spirit at work within us. God is at work in the world, changing lives and changing situations. As Archbishop Tutu says, God is transfiguring the world right this very moment through us. That's a cause for celebration, for laughter, for joy. Our lives as God's people are meant to be life-affirming and contagiously joyful. We're meant to find all sorts of ways to express it through worship, music, arts, events, parties. Be creative. Find ways to celebrate the goodness of God, His work in the world, and the sure reality of Christ's coming. Justice, peace, joy. This is how Paul sums up the revolution of God. Through Christ, God has begun to put the world to rights, and He calls us, He calls us to join in the revolution. The kingdom of God has arrived, said Jesus. Change your lifestyle, believe the good news. And the message is the same for us. The challenge is the same. Do we just settle for what we know? Do we just say, well, that's the way the world is? Or do we follow Jesus? Do we orientate our lives around the justice and the peace of his rule and find more joy and laughter and celebration than we could ever find? and selfishness and self-absorption. May God give us the grace to say a resounding yes to the challenge of the kingdom and be prepared for our lives to explode with joy and celebration.